before my NDE, I was very much an atheist. I was an angry, foaming at the mouth atheist. Um, I really didn't differentiate between religion and any other kind of spirituality. Um, I thought, you know, that it was kind of cool to hear about ghosts and it, it does make me kind of uh, a hypocrite to say that the, the exorcist absolutely terrified me so I couldn't sleep for a summer after I saw that. And so if I'm really an atheist, why does that bother me, right? Doesn't really make a lot of sense. But it seemed to make me all the more adamant that, that there was none of this silly stuff. And I was, though I did accomplish a lot, I went to Vassar, I graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and I had, you know, a, a honors on my dissertation and general honors and all, just all, all the stuff, all the stuff, all the things, as people like to say. But uh, that was when the ball was kind of just getting rolling on my alcoholism. So um, after I graduated, I moved to New York City because I thought I would be able to party better there. And um, I will just say that while I was very selfish and very vain and uh, not very loving at 22, I did my heart was torn by the homeless in New York City because I'd never seen that before. And um, I just couldn't hardly, I could hardly stand to walk by them. We lived by, my roommate and I lived by a halfway house and sometimes we'd hear people at night screaming who were crazy. And one night there was this, this woman screaming, God, just take me now, just take me, I can't stand it. And my roommate went, God, and on a hot night too, and we have to close the window. Like she felt nothing. And so I would say that despite all this kind of superficiality about me, I had a heart. So um, that's the only way I can explain uh, where I went when I died. So let's tell that story. Um, I went to a nightclub with the best friend of my secret boyfriend who uh, had just broken up with me. There was a lot going on at that time when I was 22. He was a Coke dealer. He brought a lot of Coke. We did a lot of Coke before we got there. And when we were at the nightclub, we were dancing and doing the cocaine. And I was feeling really, really high and just feeling my ego just swelling up to the point where I finally felt like I was enough because like most young women and especially alcoholic ones, I was very, very insecure. So we ran out of cocaine and we had some cash. So we started asking around, you know, where can we buy some? And we bought some uh, from a shady looking guy. Uh, I just remember him having on a beige leisure suit and being in his twenties, upper twenties or something. Anyway, he gave us a baggie. We paid him for it. He said, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. And he disappeared. We had tested it on our lips and it had made them numb. So. We started snorting it and it did nothing. Um, it did nothing, then we snorted more, it did nothing. And then my date said in disgust, this is doing nothing for me. And he threw down his uh, bill that we were snorting with. He was a Coke dealer. I think he was a little bit more of a connoisseur than I was. And I just thought with my logic, well, if I do the whole pile, maybe I'll get a little bit high. So I just snorted the whole thing right then and there. And then I screamed in his ear that I was going to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom and that's when I started to develop tunnel vision. And it was because unbeknownst to me, 
that was not even any part of it cocaine. After I got sober and I got a lot of friends in AA who used to be drug dealers, they said, more than one said, you are probably sold lidocaine. We used to cut cocaine with it in the 80s because it's much cheaper than cocaine, but it sounds like what you were given, if it didn't get you high at all, was pure lidocaine, which is just an anesthetic. And when you ingest it systemically, it shuts down your automatic nervous system. So among other things, your heart stops. So does breathing naturally stop. Um, I mean, or automatically. Uh, so when I was in the bathroom, my brain was getting less and less oxygen and it was starting to get very speckly, those kind of orange speckles that you get when you're gonna faint. And they were kind of closing in more and more. And I just wasn't scared. I just thought, oh, cool. Uh, this must be a side effect of cocaine that nobody told me about. But then it started getting so dark, I could hardly see and I couldn't read any of the graffiti in the bathroom stall. And I came out in kind of a panic, feeling like there was no air in the nightclub because my heart wasn't, my heart was probably down to like 30 beats a minute, I would guess. Anyway, it didn't matter how deeply I breathed, nothing would get to my brain. So my date said, let's get you some water. He took me to the bar. The bartender held out a glass of water, which I did not want, but just to please them, I took it and I took a sip. When I took the sip, that's the moment when I left my body. Back here on earth, I had a grand mal seizure and uh, hit the floor and banged all around on it, having this horrible thing, and then had a cardiac arrest. And then the bartender came out trying to do CPR on me for three minutes without getting a response. But that's not what was happening for me. So what was happening for me was at the moment that uh, I left my body, I felt something strike me under the chin and I had a very brief thought, did I collapse and hit my chin on the bar? But then I realized, no, whatever hit me had shot me up in the air and I just shot straight up out of that nightclub. And I, I just had a brief, very brief sense of leaving behind the island of Manhattan and with it, all the nonsense. That's how I thought of it, all that nonsense. And that nonsense was my life as Louisa. I just felt like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to do that silly thing anymore. And so that was gone and I was just shooting up into a clear blue sky with the ocean going around from horizon to horizon, nothing but sky and ocean. And both were beautiful blue. And I shot up and I had this thought that I could do a back bend, sort of like Esther Williams and into a swan dive into the ocean and I pulled it off. It, it went just perfectly and I was quite pleased with that. Then I'm diving from great height towards the ocean and I just had a brief thought. Won't it be like concrete when I hit it? You know, isn't that what I've always heard from people jumping off bridges? So I wasn't really scared. I just thought, hmm. And then when I hit it, I dove way down deep in it and everything was fine. But then I thought, wow, how am I going to get up to the water? I've so far down. Next thing I know, I'm at the surface. I look and I see the shoreline and I want to be there. Next thing I know, I'm waving out. I'm, I'm wading out of the ocean. And these things that I'm just there, that it's just happening, all they do is kind of please me. I don't feel like, how did that happen? I don't feel puzzled. Why didn't I have to swim? You know, it just pleases me that, yeah, that's where I want to be. And now I'm there. And so I looked down the beach, which was 
Sadly, not a beautiful tropical beach. It was a northwest beach, which, as you know, is all barnacly and rocky. And so it was that kind of beach. And uh, down a long ways, I saw a weather-beaten house up on a mesa. And I thought, ah, that has to do with me. I want to be there. But instead of getting to the house, I got to the foot of the mesa, which was now a huge pile of slimy, gross rocks. I don't remember any stink, but I remember the brief thought, is this rotten seaweed or some kind of like poop? Like I just didn't know it was so gross, but I was really determined to get to that house. So I climbed the rocks. I had a big sense of can do. Unfortunately, when I reached the house, I had somehow lost my body. So <laughs> I was now about this far from the door sill as I passed over it. And I was just kind of a subjective camera eye that that low to the ground, which I was not really pleased with. I, I was kind of like, I hate this. Why did I lose my body? You know, I didn't, didn't, I can't say I said, why did I lose? But I just thought this is inconvenient that I'm so low to the ground. But as soon as I crossed over the threshold, I became thrilled with the knowledge and the insight that this was a threshold that all my ancestors had crossed, going way, way back and coming all the way up to my grandmother and grandfathers now. And I could feel them happy. They weren't so much in the house as around it. They could see me. They could see me entering the house and it pleased them. And um, I, in my 22-year-old regular life, did not give a crap about my ancestors. I just, I never, not anybody who even wants to know the names. My family was uh, alcoholic and troubled, so I didn't even know who my cousins were. Um, but in, on the other side, it meant everything to me. And I had a sense of honor. Like, I am so honored to follow my ancestors. Um, but there was supposed to be a chair in the middle of the main room that looked out through a great big window at the ocean, and now the sun was setting. And I knew that all my ancestors loved to sit in that chair and admire the sunset, and I just had a feeling of like, well, that's no fair. How am, I'm only, you know, how am I going to see it? There's no chair, and I can't. Anyway, something grabbed me by the sternum at that point and pulled me across the floor and I had a sense of whoa and then went up and over and out the window and as I went up and out the window I had another just tremendous sense of thrill I wasn't sure what was happening but it was wonderful whatever it was and the next thing I know I was zooming across the water just over the water and the sun was setting and it was leaving a path of a bright reflection and I followed that straight toward the sun and the deliciousness of that feeling of zooming I just can't describe but then I had a interrupting skeptical thought so a little bit of me was still there and I just thought wait a second this flying in wonderful circumstances isn't that a dream thing is this real and then someone answered and said, more real than anything back there. I was not expecting to be answered. So I was kind of surprised and I couldn't see who had answered me or anything. But at the same time, I could feel it was a very sort of powerful voice. And I had to say, yeah, you're, you're right, I, it is. And so at that point, the sun started getting bigger and bigger. And um, it began to, I could actually see sort of modeled 
shades of gold and and uh, I don't know richer gold on it and I thought am I gonna burn up same as I thought am I gonna you know hit the water too hard I thought if I go into the sun I'm just gonna vaporize and and I wasn't scared again and what happened was I just went right through the surface like it was some kind of very fragile filament and I felt myself break through it and I was in the center of the sun and in the sun was as you might guess if you've heard other NDE stories the light and uh this was it always makes me cry but for this insecure love starved showing off constantly to get love little 22 year old it was everything i had ever wanted i had i was absolutely filled with love it just permeated every part of me it felt warm it felt wonderful and then i became aware of a sort of focal point or source that I was being held like a baby, like someone cradling me like an infant. And this was some sort of figure that I had a sense, though I could see nothing but the light. I had a sense they were sort of like sitting on the ground and holding me like a baby and just pouring love. You are so loved. You are so loved. And I thought back, I love you. I love you. And then just kind of like all blurred and just love, love is. And I would have wanted to stay that way forever. But um, all of a sudden, the parent just said, you can't stay, you're not done yet. Boom, light is gone and I'm in blackness. Not only that, well, first, actually, I have to stay very clear. When I heard that, I threw a fit instantly and i just felt like a three-year-old and i don't know if you can remember being a real little kid and just making up your mind i am going to show them that i am a force to be reckoned with like that's how i felt <laughs> towards my that voice and and i just i i wanted to kick the parent in the shins i just wanted to um to to change their mind you've got to let me stay you're not sending me i didn't even know what back was but then I felt that not only was it pitch black, but I felt myself dropping and then I became scared. That's the only time I would say that I was afraid. And it was actually more like an instant of terror. Where am I going? What's happening? Why did I lose the light? And uh, then I began to see these little chalk figures in the blackness as though the blackness darkness itself were a blackboard and these were little figures and they were delighted and they were doing these little cartwheels and they had swing sets and teeter-totters and they were laughing and doing cartwheels and they were saying little rhymes like i can never remember the rhymes but i they were nonsense they were just like how many hippos make a flim flam and then they'd laugh and then they'd say something else and i thought well this is nowhere near as good as the light. That's what I thought. But I think the parent has given me this to entertain me until I can return to the light because I am returning to the light. So this is just to kind of pass the time until it, I can go back. So I'm watching them just like if you're watching Saturday morning cartoons with that same kind of feeling of passivity. But then one of them starts getting closer and he starts to like block out the other ones. And I'm trying to see around him. But then I hear what he's saying is how many fingers? What is your name? 
And all of a sudden I have this horrible realization. And the first part was he thinks he's a him and I'm a someone else. He thinks we're separate, which is so dumb. And he thinks that I'm supposed to burp out this code. He's burping code to me. I'm supposed to burp code back. And that's how we send messages back and forth, which is so stupid and primitive. And I just felt like, no, I know what he wants me to do. And this is what I actually thought. I, he wants me to move that big loafy thing that's down there in the garage. And by garage, I meant that I had begun to have a feeling of myself being back here and then downstairs, just like if it was under your apartment, you had your car parked in a garage. That's what how I thought of my mouth and I thought of my tongue as this thing in there. He wants me to move that around and shoot air over it. And so I just felt like if somebody said, you know, you're gonna spend 80 years in kindergarten, it's gonna be great. You can play with blocks. You can do cut and paste, you know, there's Lego. And you just feel like I can't do that for 80 years, you know? Or I guess I didn't really think about it in terms of my life, but just being being sentenced to that for a huge period of time. But then I just felt like, okay, okay. So I said three, because he had three fingers, or I guess it was two. And then I said Louisa. And uh then I was back. So um I had a huge uh, puddle of water around me that had just come out when I came back. I had been gray and dead and unresponsive until suddenly I was back. And the the bartender was doing CPR for those three minutes, but I just don't think that can explain. A friend of mine, uh, Jeff Driscoll, proposed that he moved the lidocaine around in my bloodstream enough that uh, it was able to be absorbed by more cells but how does that happen in three minutes if i've had enough to kill me and then i'm back and i'm fine it doesn't make any sense